you're listening to Planet Pod, the podcast for everyone who cares about the planet. Hello and welcome to Planet Pod. I'm Amanda Carpenter. And today we're talking city streets and green spaces. How do they coexist in our increasingly urban life? I was fairly shocked recently to read that over 80% of the UK population is living in an urban space. And globally, that figure is well over half and rising. So what can we do to make our cities healthier, cleaner, more sustainable places to live? And how does urban planning and environment affect our well-being? Is there a role for planners and those responsible for the built environment in this debate? And what can we all do to put pressure on them to make them more aware of the needs of us as individuals and of the planet in relation to climate change? So a massive topic, very interesting and fascinating. And to do justice to it today, I have three guests in the studio who all have... um, varied and very deep and knowledgeable experience and wisdom to contribute. Um, Meredith Whitten is based at the LSE, London School of Economics, and her research examines the influences on how urban green space is used as a planning tool to address contemporary urban challenges, such as climate change, physical and mental health. Um, Her long professional career um, started in the States. Um, She worked as a policy analyst and advisor to the Texas State Legislature. She sits on the GLA's Green Infrastructure Task Force and she acts as an advisor to Covent Garden Community Association. What's really cool about Meredith is she tweets as at Urban Parks Girl and they're really lovely, great pictures. I love the sheep, Meredith, so welcome. (laughs) Thank you, thank you for having me. My second guest, Harry Nibb, is a sustainability and well-being expert, and he provides strategic advice for the built environment and works with the global consultancy WSP. His work spans many scales from city to the block, both nationally and internationally. And Harry, I was really interested to read that you delivered a citywide sustainability roadmap for Jakarta. I'm going to ask you about that because I have no idea what that means, but it sounds fascinating. He's an award winner, particularly for his research in the link between pro-environmental behaviour and happiness. And he's a specialist around uh, loneliness, isolation, the built environment and what we can do to improve that. Welcome, Harry. Hi, Amanda. And my third guest today has the enviable job of holding the brief for sustainability for possibly London's newest most dynamic and coolest place, Granary Square, the development at King's Cross. I'm a big fan. Steve Kellett is Argent Sustainability Manager and he's responsible for environmental sustainability across um, all of Argent's activities at a corporate and project level. He's wide experience of the built environment and when we met recently at Granary Square, Steve, you not only introduced me to my favourite new place in London, you also introduced me to what is becoming one of my favourite phrases, public realm. And I didn't know what public realm was, so I'm going to get you to explain that later. So welcome, Steve. As regular pod listeners know, we always try and start with a good, a bad and an ugly. So I'm going to ask my guests to share theirs. (laughs) 
Meredith, do you have one? Um, I do. Um, so I was in the London borough of Wandsworth recently doing research. Um, again, my research is on urban green space. Um, and I came across a, a very small green space, uh, a pocket park really, right at Putney Bridge. Uh, it's called Waterman's Green. And it's, it's a tiny space and it was just a very sad, unwelcoming space. Part of that is because there's a lot of construction going on. Um, there's the, the super sewer construction is happening. Um, part of the space has been taken over by a local restaurant, and the rest just was incredibly neglected. Um, right across the river is Bishop's Park, which is this beautiful, glorious green space. Down the road is Putney Heath, Putney Common, uh, Wandsworth Park. And so by comparison, this space was just incredibly underused. It, it had a potential, it's riverside, it's a small space, and to me it, it just illustrated how we tend to overlook these smaller, more informal spaces. Um, to kind of counter that, um, also in Wandsworth, there's a green space called Garrett Lane Old Burial Ground. It's right across from Southside Shopping Center, um, next to a big Sainsbury's, and it is part of the urban fabric in such an ideal way. It's got the history with the burial ground. It's got a constant flow of people coming and going from the shops. Um, the day I walked by, it was sunny and beautiful. People were sitting out in the grass, talking. It's right next to a library. I saw people reading. There's development going on right next to it. And it, it really contrasted with Waterman's Green on how a space can be small, but still be an essential and beneficial and valuable part of the urban fabric. That's so typical of London, and I guess all big cities, I mean, you know, developed cities, in that you have amazing spaces just rubbing alongside neglected, less appealing places. And I think that's something that as planners, you know, there's more could be done, isn't there? But also as communities, actually, to get involved and take over those spaces and become responsible for them. So things like the urban garden movement, movement where people just go and plant up spaces as guerrilla gardens. And that's something that we as individuals need to respond to as well as pushing it back onto planners, isn't it? I mean, we can't just say the planners have got it wrong, we're not going to do anything. Yes, it's exactly right. Um, as we, we probably will get to it later, but as local authorities can take on less and less management of green space, uh, community groups are becoming more and more integral to the management and, and really to the existence of those spaces. Um, so there is definitely a place for those local communities to, to, yeah. to help out with green spaces. We, we need to step up. How about you, Harry? Have you got a good, bad or ugly you want to share with us? Oh, yeah, no, I've got a ugly, actually, that I think is also going to end up being a good and that is something I read a few years ago um, so it's a little dated but it's that the UK is the loneliness capital of Europe and um, just intuitively that's that's a bad thing but when you start to look into it you can you can realize that being lonely and isolated is terrible for your mental health it causes uh, stress anxiety and depression but it's also bad for your physical health you know you, your blood pressure pressure is raised it can cause heart problems and stroke and research has shown that it's as bad as smoking 15 cigarettes a day. So this is a, this is a big topic and it's, it's, it's costly. It, um, it does cost billions to the healthcare because mm, people who are yeah. ill go to the doctor, they have to be treated and therefore that, that's a cost to the public sector. But it can also be costly to the private sector too. Um, so this, this I think is, is the ugly side of it. 
I think the good side of it is that when you look into the research, there is um, the, the built environment has a major impact on whether or not people can or do become isolated and lonely. And therefore, if we're in the in the world that we exist in, especially which is looking at new development and regeneration and things like that, then there's a great opportunity to mitigate isolation and loneliness and therefore have those positive impacts to people, which can then flow down to the public sector purse and, and, and those sorts of items as well. Yeah, huge opportunity to make the sorts of spaces that Meredith was describing as more welcoming to encourage people to feel part of their community and not become isolated. I know it's not as simple as that because there's a whole issue about access and the weather mm. and, and people's confidence and feeling safe. So fascinating. How about you, Steve? You've got a good, bad, ugly? Um, so, yeah, when you asked this question, I did agonise over it. And <laughs> I think it personifies my in internal debate about whether stories I read are good or bad ugly because for every bad story you read for instance in the press there's been a lot about insect Armageddon where all of our insect species are in massive decline because of pesticides farming etc but on the flip side I read an article this week that gorilla numbers are in a rise in Central Africa which shows that when there's a coherent um, conservation effort, species are resilient. And so that's a good story. So overall, I don't know whether to think humans are having an overall negative impact going forward or positive. And it's very hard to read these stories and know what to think at the end of the day. Yeah. I, I think <laughs> you're absolutely right and I think it's something we talk about a lot on the pod is because we try and really get under the surface of some of the issues and as soon as you start doing that it becomes really complicated mm. it's not a black and white area and the environment sustainability are not things you can just put in boxes and isolate and say this is good that's bad I mean the plastics debate typifies that you know great that we're reducing reducing plastics um, the downside of that is companies that make plastics may well go under they may end up with badly made plastics that are even less recyclable so there's always a kind of flip side to the conversation isn't it nothing sits in in isolation um, so, sorry, it tends yeah, to be the negative stories that have a lot more press or coverage around it so the positive ones when they do happen kind of get swept under the rug and then people move on to something more negative next time. yeah absolutely well the, the, the negatives make better headlines don't they they mm, always yeah. have done you know People don't want to talk about the good stuff. But we do encourage people to talk about good stuff on the pod. I mean, I had a read a story this week that um, about Newcastle that was actually cutting down more trees than any other UK council. And I thought, gosh, that's terrible. But when I actually read the article in detail, the fraction percentage of trees they were cutting down was minute. So it's, you know, and they were planting twice as many somewhere else. Admittedly, it takes a long time for a tree to grow. But so I completely agree with you. It's that kind of nuanced conversation. Um, and hopefully we can have that as we delve into the built environment. So back to you, Steve. Come on, you're going to have to explain to everybody what public realm means. But can you maybe do that in the wider context of what's been happening at Granary Square? Because that development, which is quite a long term piece of urban planning, uh, from my understanding, is really trying to get the environment and good, usable environmental spaces and, and, and people-friendly planning at its heart and it's driving the decision-makers? Or have I just swallowed, the, have I just swallowed the, the propaganda? So, public realm is probably defined as the spaces between buildings. So we 
talk a lot about architecture and buildings and people are very familiar with the concept that an architect designed a building. For the public realm, I think outside of built environment professionals, most people assume it's just there. The space that you walk or put your uh, travel in your car in between spaces and the parks is just there. And in most cases, it is. It's because the city's been around for hundreds of years and you have to build around all of these idiosyncrasies or rivers or pre-existing roads. But King's Cross, it was a huge opportunity to take a large area of land. It's 60 acres, all under one ownership. And apart from a few heritage buildings and the canal, a lot of it was completely open to interpretation. So it really gave us an opportunity to design the public realm and decide what the spaces between the buildings mean and how you promote accessibility and make it a lively environment that's welcoming and has a positive impact on people. So that's what we tried to do. And I think at the heart of that is Granary Square, which is a beautiful location because of the huge granary building, which is 200 years old, lovely and imposing and home to the University of Arts now and also framed by Regent's Canal along the bottom. So what we tried to do with that is make it as welcoming as possible. And one of the main contributing factors to that is eliminate cars. And I think once you've done that and encourage people to walk or cycle to places, it makes it feel more open, safer, and better air quality. And in addition to that, we made it welcoming to all types of people. So we encourage children to be there. We've got loads of fountains and children, especially in summer, run all through that. And that's complemented by a number of cafes and restaurants, as well as office space. So it becomes an environment where people go throughout the day, whether they're working, whether they're studying, or just there in the evening having fun so it doesn't become a dead zone during mm. the night or over the weekend and we're adding to that now by adding in 60 retail stores with the development of the coal drops yard which takes load of heritage buildings with beautiful existing architecture with the where the coal used to be dropped in central london and turning out into retail space yeah, it's an amazing place. And if you haven't been there, one of the things I think that really strikes you is the scale. Because although it's huge, it feels, <clears throat> excuse me, it feels quite a human scale. That may be because of the open space, but you don't go in and feel overwhelmed by these, what are effectively quite large buildings. And there's a sense of, of, of being able to access it just as a person walking, you know, in off the street. So I think you're, you know, the way you've described it with that sense of actually places that are free from cars and that must be a massive bonus but also there's a it feels quite accessible to me and and it you know always wanted to be an architecture student never quite made it that original concept of building with Corbusier's model, modular man you know and how buildings would not be the more than so many heights and he used the kind of you know the height of a person to in relation to the buildings probably talking rubbish here um that really works in Granary Square doesn't it and in that whole development because you've actually got a scale that's approachable for people and then you can go into a building that maybe you know 40 stories high and that was 
deliberate back in 2001, we set out a document that stated the principles for a human city. So I had 10 principles that we worked to. And so that was back in 2001. We didn't even start on site until 2008. So that was at the very core of what we set out to achieve. And we knew it was a huge opportunity. So we didn't want to screw it up for London, <laughs> to be honest. Um, but no, those principles have really shaped what we're doing. And it's good that it's evident to people even 18 years later. Yeah, yeah, it's clearly working. I find it interesting because we're talking about sustainable places, which of course is the buildings and the public realm and all of it that goes together. And typically sustainability is the thing that was sort of brought to our attention through climate change and it was all an energy focus. But it's evolving, I think, and this is why it's hard to sort of talk about the earlier on when we were talking about the definitions and things like that of sustainability. And now we're talking around plastics. And I think sustainability is a thing that's evolving through time as our, as our awareness <coughs> becomes greater as to what the issues are. And, and I think at the moment it feels like that the, whilst we need to still need to focus on the energy and the environmental effects, it's the social side of things that are getting quite a lot of attention. And these human-centric design philosophies, like the one you just talked about, is really central to understanding, you know, how can these places that we're developing actually work within a wider city and how can they endure through time? And I think that's quite a nice concept to think about for sustainable places because it is just inherently difficult to define that as a topic. What is a sustainable place? For me, that just very simply, it's one that can endure through time. Mm, yeah, and it's also um, not being too idealistic about it. I mean, essentially, Granary Square is a commercial development, you know, or a commercial company. So it's got to work financially. It's got to have financial sustainability for the long term, hasn't it? But if, you know, more and more of the debate that we're having is that sustainability done right equals good successful financially successful businesses and it's better for the economy as well as being better for people at its heart and I think that probably the fact that you haven't had any trouble letting a lot of those spaces in in Cranning Square is evidence that it's places people want to put their businesses because it's places their workers want to go and that must that must have an upside for the for the people who work there. Yeah absolutely and I think a lot of people are catching on to that I think if you look 20 years ago the developments that were in vogue focus far too heavily on just being purely commercially driven and office space and neglected making it mixed use that people can enjoy throughout the day and now you're seeing almost every developer use the language of placemaking and making it for people and you can see evidence of having residential alongside offices alongside retail which makes total sense and it's now almost surprising that it took so long for people to realize that and I guess even if you look a hundred years ago people were doing mixed use town centers and cities were mixed use and then for some reason we decided to segregate everything out into blocks and now we're going back square one yeah well originally we'd have lived above the shop wouldn't we we'd have lived and worked in the space the same space and this idea that we'd have commuted into somewhere which was only full of a working space you know massive great tower block when everyone turns up and then goes and then at night and in the weekends the city or the the space is dead that's a really modern concept a lot of 
these ideas have fed into the sort of research that you're doing, haven't they, Meredith? Can you just tell us a little about it? Because it's fascinating, the world that you've been working in, bringing in urban infrastructure and mental well-being and health and, and how that works. Yes. yes, so my research, I look at urban green space and what influences how it's delivered and managed. Um, and to, to ask that question, I've, I've really had to kind of step back and ask, well, what do we mean by green space? What is it? Why are we providing it? And kind of building on what Harry said about sustainability, it's, it's sustainable. The concept of sustainable development was really about this interconnectivity between the environment, the economy, and, and communities, the social aspect. And that seems like it's gotten a bit lost where we kind of focused on the environmental part, but we, we are coming back to kind of this broader definition. And that means then when we look at green spaces, we look at what are these spaces beyond just you know one type of use and i've <clears throat> i found that we actually are quite limited in how we think about green space that that green space and particularly as we think about it as green infrastructure which which is the bits between buildings that that steve mentioned um, if we think about it in a more um, urban context in a broader way it actually can have a more of an impact on our lives than 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 what we're letting green spaces do right now. So we're not just talking about parks, are we? That old-fashioned parks, the lungs of the city stuff. You're actually talking about space that's not built on that you can green in other ways. So would it would it all be always be planted, or is it just? Yeah. Well, so my research is particularly on green space, um, and that's that's part of the the kind of tension is between open space and green space. Um, okay. They, what's the difference then? So green space is going to be green or natural spaces, whereas open space can incorporate green space, but could also be um, paved space, a okay. plaza like, like Granary Square. Um, and so they do have overlapping benefits, um, like we just talked about the, the community aspect and the social sustainability, but they also can have conflicting um, uses or priorities. So if you're thinking about mitigating climate change, um, a, a paved surface is not going to help out in the way that a natural green space can be. But green space doesn't have to be this very traditional Victorian you know, square space on the ground, especially as a city like London that's already urban still continues to urbanize. We're going to have to find more places and spaces um, if we want to have more green space to accommodate the people um, and processes like biodiversity. So, so for me, green space is a broader um, concept. Uh, it's more of a green infrastructure approach, which can mean everything from a green wall to um, street trees to the old traditional, you know, um, parks that we have. And do you include roof gardens in that? Because you know, the other thing that struck me about Granary Square, you, see, you can tell I was impressed, Connie, mm -hmm. um, was there was some fabulous roof gardens and some really innovative planting by these corporations, or, the, or, or possibly by you know the landlord. Of, of large spaces that were actually very accessible and welcoming on the top of the buildings. Definitely, um, you know, the, the key issue with, with a lot of roof, green roofs is accessibility, but there's only so much space on the ground. We're gonna have to put green space elsewhere if we want green space. And a, something like a, a green roof, it has tremendous environmental benefits um, for the community as a whole, but also for that building. Um, green building is, is um, a very much a sustainability tool. Um, but as long as there's some, we're not 
denying access or we're not limiting um, the, the community aspect of that green space. I think green roofs are, we're going to see more and more. And, and we've seen quite a proliferation of them in central London. And they're a good thing, usually, aren't they? Or if they, are they a bit like your, there's always a good or there's always a bad side to the environmental argument? I mean, on the whole, green roofs are good? For the most part, yes. I mean, like, like we said, it's, always, it's not always black and white. Um, it's how a green space is managed, um, a green roof. The same with the green wall. Um, if the green, if all the plants die on the wall, it's it's not really doing what it was meant to do necessarily. So there is there is still some maintenance involved. You have to manage the space just like you would a space on the ground. And a green wall, for people who might not know, is basically just like a vertical garden, isn't it? It's it's planting that that, that goes up rather than along. Yes, exactly. Yeah, and that's. I mean, how easy is that in a in a very densely populated city like London? Because I should imagine pollution probably doesn't encourage a lot of, you know, I mean, those plants are right next to the road. You know, they might be down at street level. They they can't be a thriving environment for them. Are they easy, green walls? Um, I'm not an expert on, the, on the, the botany or the biological aspect of them, but I know it's something that's becoming increasingly popular. There is... A, a building right when you come out of Covent Garden Station, as, as soon as you exit, there is um, a building that's now all, it's now all a big green wall. Oh, yeah, I've seen um, that. Yeah, that's really it's, cool. You see people taking pictures in front of it, selfies and everything. It's it's almost an attraction into itself. Um, and the planning permission for that space was, um, I think it's two years. And part of that is because to kind of evaluate if it's working, because there's not really a, a, an understanding of you know, how long-term can a green wall be? Or do you have to, to go back and replant everything? Um, but there is there is quite a bit of maintenance that's involved with it. I'm sure. Are you getting resistance from planners and developers to the idea of building in green spaces in new urban developments? Or is it something that's relatively welcome? Um, well, it, it again, it kind of depends on the developer, I guess. Um, like, like we were talking about earlier, there's, um, there's economic benefits for developers to to make a, a pleasant public realm um, green spaces around around their development, um, but you also kind of get into the the issue of well, who is that space for? Is it public or is it is it meant for you know for the residents of that development? Um, it's it can be more expensive in the short term to to do things like um, green walls and green roofs, um, but I think the long term benefits are are why a good community-minded, conscientious developer would, would, would invest in that. And I think there's a really interesting point that you were picking up earlier, is that, <coughs> that the idea that these, all our cities, most of our cities in the UK are growing. We're going to have 10 million people in London by 2030. That's an extra million and a half people. That's, yeah. that's massive, you know. So we do need to increase the amount of green infrastructure and greenery in, within, within London, but we also need to accommodate more buildings and more people. So these seems to be sort of butting heads against each other. We're going to run out of space, aren't we, unless we expand out and nobody wants to expand out because we want compact urban forms and all that sort of thing. So I think the creativity involved is going to be the key thing. And, you know, you can, green roofs, green walls are fantastic. You can also start to see some buildings that are elevating themselves up above the ground plane. So the Leadenhall building, for example, in the city of London, you know, you can walk underneath the building and it starts basically on level one and then up it goes 50 storeys or whatever. So... You know, those sorts of things, and there are trees in there, there's a new park on the outside of it, or 20 French Church Street, you've got the Sky Garden up at the top of the walkie-talkie. You know, these, these sort of interesting uh, green spaces are increasingly creeping into really high-density spaces. I think we'll see more of. 
Is that what was involved in your sustainability roadmap? Because that struck me as being a really, I mean, a place like Jakarta, which is intensely urban and very heavily populated. Yeah. You wouldn't, I mean, I wouldn't think that there was much space for sustainability or green or even environmentally friendliness in a, in a city like that. Is that the kind of things you were looking at or, or, or was it different? Different, yeah. No, so that, that project was about helping the city government to understand how they can achieve their Paris Agreement targets. So they okay. had a certain percentage of um, carbon they had to reduce. They, they know what the carbon footprint is at the moment. And they got this target by 2030 that they need to reduce it by 30% uh, against a business as usual projection. So, you know, the question is, how do you do that? How do you, how do you start? What sort of projects do you need to implement? Low carbon projects do you need to implement that's going to help reduce the carbon footprint, but also taking into account the ex, you know tremendous growth in terms of population and, and economy that that city is experiencing, going to experience over the next, uh, well, until 2030. And that goes way beyond just planting a few more parks, yeah, doesn't it? And putting it, some green walls up. Does. That's about consumption and behaviours and it, traffic. There was, there was a big bit of behavioural change in it. There's, you know, also large renewable energy projects. There was um, a lot about, as you can imagine, the city as they expand and more people move into them, congestion's a huge issue because the infrastructure can't keep up with growth. So trying to think innovatively about how you can reduce con congestion, which effectively is people living on the outskirts, commuting into the centre, just like it happens in London, and going out again. They've got a very sort of centric model of the city out there. You want something more polycentric, so transport-orientated developments all around the outskirts is, is a really good thing that you can start to do. We we developed around 25 low carbon projects of sort of big infrastructure, whether they need a, an underground or a monorail and what sort of carbon savings that could achieve and things like that. That's real long-term thinking, isn't it? Because yeah. so much of sustainability and our work in this area is actually we can't fix this tomorrow or next year or the year after. We're talking 20, 30, 40 time, mm. years of time frame and, and thinking. Yeah, and I think um, the, the, the interesting thing about all these sorts of things we do effectively work in a world where you know decisions made now may not be built for five years time and then that construction may take another 10 years time and you know so the real long scale stuff and one of the concerns i suppose is that you make a decision that locks in a certain behavior or a certain outcome without fully understanding what the outcome is going to be and i think that's a massive opportunity for, for all of us is to really try and understand more what the outcomes of our decisions now are going to be you're listening to Planet Pod, brought to you by Akil Management and the Planet Mark. Do get in touch with us. You can tweet at planet underscore pod or visit the website theplanetpod.com where you can subscribe to the pod and download earlier episodes. Welcome back. You're listening to Planet Pod and we're talking urban spaces, infrastructure design um, and really having a more adult approach to planning so less of that knee jerk and I was really interested in what you were just saying there Harry because a lot of this is about building in for the long term and obviously planting is a long-term thing and with some of those developments comes possibly a new way of living I mean if we're running out of space we're going to have to occupy less space you know we maybe need smaller spaces to live in perhaps micro buildings but we also need to be more aware of the world around us. And I'm, Meredith, I just want to pick up on some of the stuff that you've done in your other professional activities. Because you spent a lot of time looking at wildlife, didn't you? And the impacts of wildlife in urban communities. And if anybody lives in a city or even a town, you know, the big thing they'll all moan about is wildlife, usually foxes. So there's a, 
there's a just juxtaposition, isn't there, between wildlife and the benefits of green and wildlife and living in an urban community that we haven't quite reconciled yet. No, I, I completely agree. I, I think it kind of what Steve was saying earlier about um, a space, the public realm in, a, in an urban area, um, we have these open spaces or these green spaces, but we're never going to feel like we've left the city, especially in a city like London. And so to have this kind of idea that we're leaving the city and going off into the countryside you know, when we're just stepping across, you know, Euston Road or something is, I think that's that's a bit fanciful. Um, and so that the way that wildlife factors into that, we have to kind of think differently in an urban way as well. Um, we have to think about what the wildlife's needs are, and what not just animals, but also plants, whether that's not mowing along highway verges as much, um, having uh, there's this um, wildlife kind of underpasses the road so that that um, animals are not going to to cross the road and become roadkill which we have a lot of in my native texas um and uh, but they can go under and, and pass more safely and it, it, it provides a connectivity um, throughout the city and and even into the suburbs and the countryside and that's really what sustainability and green infrastructure are about is this interconnectivity of spaces um, within the city but also connecting the city to you know, to further out um, whether it be the suburbs or, or, or further afield so wildlife is you know that's part of nature it's something that that we as humans um, benefit from we find valuable we're drawn to it so you don't want to to build your city in such a way that that you don't have that you have to go to the countryside it needs to be another thing that's thought of um, kind of as part of the the infrastructure rather that infrastructure is roads or buildings yeah and that's integral to that sense of well-being and you know that's the work that you've been doing harry about planning and well-being and loneliness and and people getting a huge amount of benefit from seeing animals and bird life particularly in cities in its natural habitat or semi-natural um, and that brings positive mental benefits doesn't it so can you just sketch out some of the stuff you've been doing around well-being because i think if i'd said to somebody oh i'm talking to somebody about planning and well-being and loneliness they go really is there a connection but there is obviously isn't there yeah there's a, there's a massive connection um i think the thing that we're doing most of at the moment is looking at healthy buildings um, specifically we're focused on, on the commercial office sector so there's a there's a lot of um what's a healthy building a healthy building well a, a tif very difficult thing to define actually you i think define an unhealthy building uh, yeah, basically, yeah. Can't you? so <laughs> you've probably all heard of sick building syndrome where people become ill because of the indoor environments that they're in well the healthy building would be the opposite of that it, it would not make you ill in any way it would give you all the right daylight it would be thermally comfortable acoustically it wouldn't be too noisy or actually too quiet sometimes offices are too quiet you know you don't want to be involved in that it allows you the right sort of spaces so you can go and socialize and have coffee and, and lunch with people or it allows collaborative space and also it gives you a lot of control you know so a healthy building would be one that you can control that maybe the lighting or the temperature a little bit more than you typically would in, a, in an office now which is not at all effectively so that you know my what i find comfortable may be different to what you feel comfortable which maybe meredith feels comfortable and, and being able to control these things a little bit more would be better for you in terms of your health but then the real big business driver i suppose for this is that it links quite strongly onto productivity and if you can 
you know, move away from having four days sick days, which is what on average everybody in the UK has, which seems like quite a lot, but that is what the statistics say. You know, if you can have a healthy building that reduces people's stress because there's a green wall, reduces the, maybe the physical illnesses they have because there's better ventilated air, there's less cold and flus going around, and you only take one or two days off a year, there's absolutely massive benefit for business to get involved in that. Steve? Yeah, just on the productivity point, we're working with, on a project with Innovate UK and Oxford Brookes University with one of our tenants on establishing the link between a healthy building and productivity. So we're doing tests where we improve either ventilation rates in the building, make sure the temperatures are consistent and what people want to work in, and then doing psychometric tests, so like spelling tests, etc., and trying to find the correlation between their improvement in their mental capacity or productivity and the link between that and the well-regulated building. And there is a correlation, so we're halfway through the study and results will be released in November. And it's something like an increase of 5 to 10% increase in productivity, which if you're a business and all your staff are 10% more productive just because the ventilation rights, rates and temperature is consistent and to the best quality, that's a huge impact on business as well as the healthiness of your employees. That's a massive benefit and we really struggle with productivity in the UK don't we? It's one of the things that, that endlessly has talked about how we're a really unproductive nation so that's brilliant to get some proper robust evidential data on that though. Yeah. Harry you wanted to come back? Yeah no that's fantastic research and look forward to hearing the results. Um, I think that that, that that link to productivity though can be taken taken wider from the from the um, the interior office environment for that particular business to a bit of a more of a city scale approach. And th there's a lot of stuff being done, you know, the UK's industrial strategy and whatnot for boosting the UK's productivity. Mostly it's focused around, you know, trade, skills, the transport, and these are fantastic focus areas. But I think one of the things that is missing is actually how does cities and regeneration schemes and buildings and the orientation between them lock in behaviours that could be either really productive or most likely unproductive and I think that's probably a missing part that whilst you can't really quantify the research isn't there at the moment I do think that that everybody should be doing their best to improve productivity and therefore focusing on that could be useful. One of the things that is really interesting is kind of the more things change the more they stay the same because the Victorians who are credited with the whole public park movement or parks for the people, um, it wasn't just this purely benevolent thing that they did. It was largely because of productivity. Um, they had workers that were living in these slum-like conditions in, in East London. Um, they were very unhealthy. They um, had what the Victorians thought were very immoral behavior. And so um, the, the very people who own these factories would also provide green spaces to help their workers be more productive. So really, these, these beautiful green spaces, this kind of Victorian legacy we have, was born out of the idea of how do we increase productivity. Absolutely. And that led, I guess, to things like the Garden City movement, which we're trying to revive, aren't we? And the idea that we, we can create spaces to live and work that are closer to you know, the environment we'd rather be in. Because if you ask most people, they'll say, I'd much rather live in the country. The reality of living in the country is it's pretty tough most of the time you know there's no public transport there are very few services you've got to go miles to get to the school you can't buy a pint of milk so so it's a kind of slightly idealized 
vision of that. But if we can bring that sense of wanting to be in a green space into a city where most of us will be living and get it right. And I think you're right. The Victorians got quite a lot right. Quite a lot wrong too, but they got quite a lot right. <laughs> I don't know how they were on healthy buildings there. Yeah. Going back to that creative, how, how do you get more green space into a dense city? I think, you know, the classic thing is the High Line in New York where they converted that old railway line mm. in 2009 into a green space. And it's, it's popular. It's massively popular. And actually... It was a small project in the whole grand scheme of New York, but it acted, it acted as a catalyst for regeneration for a downtown area, which is fantastic. They've got one in Paris as well. Nobody knows that. Did it was pre-New York and it's <laughs> gorgeous, but they've got one in Paris. We haven't got a, a high line yet, but we have got, you've got something similar at Granny Square, haven't you? A kind of walk, the yeah, green walk. So, there's actually, so we've got Bagley Walk, which goes along Cold Drops Yard, which I referenced earlier, but... There is a proposal to do the Campton High Line, so nothing to do with us. It's a uh, business improvement district kind of collaborative effort in Camden to use a bit of their disused railway um, between Camden and King's Cross. So it's about the same length as High Line, and they're just getting funding together now. So it's certainly acted as a catalyst for a lot of other urban places to see how they can use their disused infrastructure and improve it. Mm. It all comes back to scale again, doesn't it? And when you were describing the healthy building and the productivity, I was thinking that actually that's about giving people a bit more control, isn't it? Because if we have control over our environment, we react better with it. But there must be a sustainability benefit because if you can turn down the heating if you can you know use different lighting systems if you can turn off lights if you're a bit more in control you're looking skeptical i'm a little bit skeptical i think they're different things sustainability and health aren't the same thing and therefore within that you have synergies but you also have trade-offs so the experiment you're doing about increasing ventilation rates that's going to increase fan power you're going to need more energy to do that okay um, but there are synergies as well. You know, daylighting is fantastic for your health. If you have more daylighting going into your space, you're going to need less lights than if you're reducing energy as well. Yeah, okay. So there's me always trying to find the benefit. <laughs> always the Pollyanna of sustainability here. Always trying to find the upside of everything that we do. Yeah. I do think there's, this conversation could have gone on, go, could and possibly will go on for a lot longer. But, but I'd really like to, as we kind of draw to a close ask you if there's anything specific that you would have you know as a call to action for pod listeners things that people can do whether they're sitting in a planning department and that would be brilliant but but just perhaps part of um an organization or an individual in a community what would you have them do as a result of this debate we've been having about urban spaces and and, and green spaces steve have you got a call to action within that context i would always think about the long term and think about holistic returns and don't just make quick decisions. And I think if you do that, you will get the return on investment by, in a planning context, attracting the right tenants, attracting the right visitors, and have something that's meaningful in 10 years' time, rather than just seeking out what it looks like in three years. Yeah, don't chase the quick buck. Harry? Well, mine's similar, actually. It's that we, we need to do more work to understand the consequences of our, of our developments and what they mean socially. So I think the good example is that we're focused on energy very strongly, and rightly so, but you know, by asking our homes to use less energy, we're now suffering with overheating. That's, a, that's an unintended consequence of more airtight buildings. 
Is the same thing happening socially by developing the buildings we are at the moment? I don't think we know. Meredith? Um, I would say, you know, think, think outside of the box when you think about green space. Don't just think about it being um, a very traditional, large kind of flagship space, but think about your local informal spaces as well, because research shows that it's those spaces that have most of an impact on your daily life. Thank you. And a huge thank you to all of you, my guests today, Meredith Witten, Steve Kellett and Harry Nibb. Thank you. And thank you for um, being here and sharing your immense experience and wisdom with us. And a thank you to Jim, our producer, who's very urban cool, personifies urban cool, I would say, um, and to Breakthrough for their support for the pod. You've been listening to Planet Pod with me, Amanda Carpenter. Join us again next time when we talk about art, design and the environment. But for now, goodbye. <laughs>